You're listening to a new sermon series from Sojourn Church Carlisle, entitled All in the Family. Over the next few weeks, we'll be sharing how to cultivate a strong relationship with God through managing our finances, as well as maintaining strong relational dynamics in both familial and non-familial contexts. We hope that this series will give a clear vision and a much deeper appreciation of how God is calling each of us to become faithful stewards of our finances, of our families, and of our friendships. Good morning. Good morning, good morning, good morning. For those who may not know me, uh, my name is James Fields. I serve here as a lead pastor at Soldier Church Carlisle, um, and I'm Indeed, a great privilege and honor to be with you this morning. This morning, um, if you um, are visiting with us for the first time, can you take one of those Connect cards? They should be found in a pew in front of you. Uh, fill those out so we can know that you're here, um, be able to know how we can pray for you and continue to serve you um, in the coming days and weeks um, as our special guest here this morning. This morning, we'll continue in our series called Desecrated. Uh, the faces of sin to help us build and asking God to build us into a Christ-honoring community um, that actively grows in our hatred towards sin and learns to humbly confess our sins to God and to one another. You know, in Amy Edmondson's book, The Fearless Organization, she identifies the three most common types of failure within an organization. My favorite type of failure is the one that she calls the preventable failure. And here's how she defines that. She defines it as the first, she says, the first and most obvious type of failure is the preventable failure, which is essentially what it sounds like. It's a failure that you had the knowledge of and maybe even the ability to prevent. You know, in our lives, we see this often. We see this when our children are standing on an unstable chair trying to get a cookie from the cookie drawer on top of the refrigerator. We see this with a frantic driver weaving in and out of traffic in the middle of a thunderstorm. We see this often. I'll say this from my household. I see this often. When I forget to get the razors out of the tub... And I put my son in there to take a bath. And inevitably, he comes out with a new haircut. One that I did not approve of, and one that I certainly did not want him to have. Yeah, it's extremely difficult when we experience failure, but especially when we could have prevented it. You know, last week we discussed the nature of sin by looking at the hiddenness of sin, the power of sin, and our hope over sin. And our theme of last week was this, don't underestimate the power, the presence, and the purpose of sin in our lives. In our story today, we witness God's response to preventable behavior. And here's a theme that we want to walk away with, hopefully and by God's grace, so we'll walk away with at the end. Failure isn't fatal with God. Failure isn't fatal 
with God. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we do thank you that failure is not fatal with you, that God, somehow, someway, you always take our mistakes, you always take our mishaps, you always take, God, what we don't complete rightly or, or fully, and you make it complete. Thank you, ultimately, you, that you've done that through your son, Jesus, that he is the fulfillment of every promise and every purpose that you have in our life. May he be exalted. May he be seen. May he be glorified. As always, take the little I have, God, and make much of it. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, sin is a parasite. And I love what the, how the Oxford Dictionary defines a parasite. It says it this way. It says, a parasite is an organism that lives in or on an organism of another species or its host. And it benefits by deriving nutrients at the expense of other organisms. And as a parasite, sin loves to live secretly and hide out in the corner and crevices of our lives. Much like when a parasite is living on an organism, there are symptoms of its existence, even when it's not confirmed by the host. In other words, there are three primary lies that reveal the hiddenness of sin in our own lives. And today we're going to explore the three primary lies that Satan uses to tempt us to quit on our God. We see this quite clearly in the text today. The first lie is this, God doesn't care. God doesn't care, meaning that God's too busy to get involved within my life problems. We'll see this in verses one through three. The second line that we're going to talk about today is that God can't comprehend. This means that God doesn't fully understand my predicament. See this in verses four through six. And then lastly, but definitely not least, we'll see that God isn't credible. Means that God isn't good enough to do anything about my pain. We'll see that in verses 7 through 12. Today we'll examine these three lies, and by God's grace, hopefully, we'll remind ourselves of three truths to combat them. Because as we said from the beginning, failure isn't fatal with God. Look with me to verses 1 through 3 for the first lie. It says, God doesn't care. It says, Abraham, Sarah's wife, had, bore, uh, had not bore any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Sarah said to Abraham, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her I can build a family. And Abraham agreed to what Sarah said. So Abraham's wife, or Abram's wife, Sarah, took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband as a wife for him. So at the beginning of our story, we see the parasitic lie that we see eating away at Sarah. The first lie is very common and undeniable, undeniably effective. And that lie is simple, that God doesn't care. Notice with me the predicament of Sarah. Abraham was 75 years old when he moved to Canaan, and God promised him to be a great nation. See that in Genesis 12, 4. It says, so Abraham went, and as the Lord had told him, 
Abraham was 75 years old when he left Haran. Sarah was 10 years younger than Abraham. And we see this in Genesis 17, 17. Abraham says this, Abraham fell face down. Then he laughed and said to himself, can a child be born to a hundred year old man? Can Sarah, a 90 year old woman, give birth? So here's a question that Sarah is struggling with. Here's a predicament that she finds herself in. She's struggling with this question. I know what God had promised Abraham. I know what God had promised Abram, but does his promise also include me? I know, I know that Abram saw God. I know that he walks with God. I know that he hears from God. I know that God speaks to him in a very special way. But does that promise also include me? This lie echoes the previous lie of the great liar himself, Satan, from Genesis 3.1. Remember that lie that he spoke to the innocence of Adam and Eve in the garden? He said, did God really say? Did God really say? You see, Sarah is starting to believe the great lie of our enemy. And that lie is simple, but it's awfully effective. It is that God doesn't care. He doesn't care about me. He doesn't care about my predicament. He doesn't care about my problems. God doesn't even care about my pain. God doesn't need me to be involved. Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever thought those thoughts? That I know that God is good to others. (laughs) I know that he's been good to my parents or to my in-laws, but but can God really be good to me? I know that that works for other people. I know that God has blessed those in the Bible, but could, could he possibly do the same thing for me today in 2022? My husband or my wife has a really close relationship with God, and and that's good enough for me. As long as they're close to God, God really doesn't want me to have a close relationship with him personally. Sure, all of us, including myself, have thought those thoughts at some point in our lives. Do want to address the elephant in the room? Because it seems like Hagar comes out of nowhere. Who is this character, Hagar, and where does she come from? Hagar, as as the text tells us, she was an Egyptian slave. But how did Abraham and Sarai end up getting her within the household? Well, We see that in Genesis 12.4. Remember this? It says, upon leaving Egypt, Pharaoh gave Abram many gifts. He treated Abram well because of her. Her is being Sarai there, not Hagar. And Abraham acquired flocks and herds, male and female donkeys, check this, male and female slaves, and you kind of add on camels at there at the end, right? Hagar was a gift given from Pharaoh to Abraham. She was a gift given when Abraham went to Egypt and lied and said that Sarah was his wife, was, excuse me, was his sister, and not his wife. And because she was very beautiful, Pharaoh took her from 
Abraham into her own household. God chastised Abram for his passivity, and Abraham ended up confessing to Pharaoh, no, 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 she's really not my sister, she's my wife. And as a result, Pharaoh gave him these things. So what factors led Sarah to give Hagar to her husband? I love what Beth Moore says uh, about this. She says, much of the war against the devil is about whether you'll quit. (laughs) Much of the war against the devil is about whether you'll quit. Notice with me the weightiness of sin in the world. The presence of sin thus far has caused Sarah to be burdened, to be barren. The presence of sin allowed Hagar to be offered as a slave. The presence of sin authorized Sarah to use her slave for her own selfish purposes. We see that not only has man evolved throughout human history and biblical history, but we see that sin is also evolving, causing us, influencing us, getting us to do things that we otherwise ought not do or should not do according to the Holy Scriptures. Love how the Bible knowledge commentary puts it. It says, Sarah Sarah was barren, so by all human calculations, the heir of the promise could not come through her at all. This set into motion some dubious activities by Abraham and Sarah. Abraham learned, however, that God's promises was not to be fulfilled in this way. Let's remind, let's remind ourselves really quick of the timeline thus far. Remind ourselves of the timeline because honestly, you know, when we get into areas of our life where we feel like God doesn't care, we have to make sure that if we can't see forward, that we always ask God to help us to look backwards and remember, to recall. Whenever in your life, beloved, that you get into a place where you can't see forward, it's always an invitation by God to look backwards and to recall the faithfulness of your God, to recall the goodness of your God, and to recall the presence of your God in your life. Remember this so far? Genesis 12, God makes a covenant with a pagan Gentile man named Abram. (laughs) The holy God, the, the most holiest, most beautiful being in all of the universe, makes a covenant with a man who doesn't even know him, who's worshiping the things of God, but not worshiping God himself. In Genesis 13, we see how Abraham and Lot separated from each other, and Lot essentially takes the better land, leaving Abraham with seemingly the scraps to bear. In Genesis 14, Abraham rescues Lot from the conquering kings by the help of God. In Genesis 15, God promises a son to childless Abram. In Genesis 16, we see that now Abram is 75 years old, and yet Sarah is still barren. Through all of this, time and time again, I believe that God was, was, was um, in the midst of Sarah's barrenness, I believe that God was calling Abraham to reflect on his goodness and to reflect on his character. It's a good reminder for us this morning that Sarah's predicament 
was not her predicament to bear on her own. I think Yolanda Adams said it best. She says, the battle is not yours, but it's the Lord's. And beloved, if you are struggling right now with that parasitic lie that is eating away at you that God doesn't care about me, I want you to be reminded. And I want you to be reminded of all the times that God has shown his care to you, how God has shown up for you, how God has maybe even delivered you. How long did Sarah wait until she took matters into her own hands? Look with me in verse 3. It says, this happened after Abram had lived in the land of Cana for 10 years. Now listen, I'm all about giving credit where credit's due. To Sarah's credit, she waited 10 years before they had decided to quit on God's plan for their lives. Listen, 10 years is a long time, y'all. That's a long time. Consider Sarah's life for a moment. For 10 years, she had to answer the pain-staking question about not having a baby. For 10 years, she watched her male and female servants all around her giving birth. For 10 years, she patiently waited on God to show up and provide. For 10 years, she wondered if God's promises excluded her as a woman. And for 10 years, she was pondering the question, does God really see me? So let me ask you, what have you been waiting on God for? Are you waiting on God to provide in in a certain way? Better yet, in your waiting, are you drawing closer to God? Are you drawing further away from him? And here's the ultimate question I really want you to consider. How long is too long to wait on God? How long is too long? You know, my birthday was about a month ago, and uh, unexpectedly, I got a little extra money from a family member enough to get me something that I've always wanted to get. Um, You may think this is bougie, and that's okay. I'll take your judgments. It's all right. But I really, ever since I was a kid, I've always wanted a certain pair of Jordans, Michael Jordan shoes. And uh, I got this little extra money, and I'm like, oh, I'm going to finally get them. (laughs) I'm so excited. So I start going online and Man, they were super, super expensive, but I found this pair that was kind of a little on the cheaper side. I was like, you know what? I think I might get these, you know? I'm not going to pay the extra $200 or whatever, $100 for these shoes. I'm thinking I'm going to get this pair. So I, I, I go and I order these shoes, and I tell my wife, and we're, I'm excited, and it's kind of off-brand, but I don't care. I'm just like, man, I just really want these shoes. You kind of you probably know where this is going. That's okay. Three weeks later, I get a text from my wife. Your shoes came in. And she writes, they're fake. I said, they're fake? She said, yeah, I think they're fake. I went online and went on YouTube, you know, go to YouTube for everything, right? Looking at fake Jordans versus real Jordans, did all the tests, and yeah, they were fake. 
So in my shame and my despair, I took the shoes and I mailed them back. Still waiting on my refund. Pray for me, please. <laughs> Hopefully I get it someday soon. But I want you to know, listen, I had the money to get what I wanted. I had the provision, but I didn't have the patience. <laughs> I'm here to tell you, if you're struggling in a similar way, that listen, God's process is always worth your patience. Listen to me, God's process. I don't care if it takes five years. I don't take it cares 10 years. I don't care if it takes 20 years. God's process is always worth your patience because God's process is always best. It's always best. He's not a surgeon who is doing his surgery for the first time, who's nervous. He is a God who has shown himself faithful time and time again from the very beginning of time. And listen, if you are waiting on God, to do something miraculous, if you are waiting for God to do something specific, if you are waiting on God, you are in a good place because God is the only one in our lives who's worthy for our patience. What caused Sarah to quit on God? Look at with me in verse 2. Sarah said to Abraham, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children... Go to my slave. Essentially, Sarah, Sarah wrongly placed the blame of her barrenness upon God. She said, listen, God did this to me. God put me in this predicament. God doesn't see me. God doesn't care. Therefore, Abraham, do whatever you want to do. Just, just make it happen. Have you ever been there before? We just tired of waiting. And he's just like, look, I just want the, I just want the answer. <laughs> I don't wanna, I don't wanna, I don't wanna go through the problems of getting the answer. I just want the just give me the answer. I don't even care how I get it. Just give me the answer. You see, and we're reminded of why. Somebody might be saying, hey, why, why would Sarah do this? <laughs> why would she respond? In this way, well, it seems like Sarai, like, much, 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 like us at times in our lives, she didn't feel seen by God. She felt forgotten and she felt neglected by him. I love how the Erdman's companion to the Bible puts it. It says, Sarai appears more concerned with her own cultural disgrace as a childless wife than with the fulfillment of God's promise of descendants to Abram. When Hagar conceives, Sarah discovers that her plans does not produce the results she had hoped for, and her selfish motives become her most obvious, more obvious in her harsh treatment of Hagar. Church family, when you feel neglected and or even abandoned by God, I want to encourage you to avoid the temptation to create your own plan. When you feel neglected, when you feel abandoned by God, we have to resist and we have to go against the temptation to try to, to create our own plan. And here's why. 
Because failure isn't fatal with our God. Failure isn't fatal with our God. Look with me at verse 4 to witness the second lie of sin. God can't comprehend. Verse 4 says this. It says, so he, Abraham, slept with Hagar and she became pregnant. Her mistress became contemptible to her. Now, the focus goes from Sarai, who is living with the question, the parasitic lie of God doesn't care. And now we turn our attention to Abraham and see the parasitic lie that's lying on him. God can't comprehend. Notice the predicament of Abram. Abram is in a, a, between a rock and a hard place. He received a promise from God without a provision from him. It's a really hard place to receive a promise from someone without having necessarily the provision from that person. Consider Abraham's life. Again, in Genesis 12, he was randomly called by God as a pagan man. He followed God's command to relocate his family to an unknown land of Canaan. He lived in Canaan for 10 years with the promise of God that was yet to be fulfilled. And here's the question that Abraham is struggling with. Here's the question that he is thinking about. How long is too long to wait on God? How long is too long to wait on God? Another way of putting that is this. Does God know what he's doing? I don't know if you've ever felt that in your life. <laughs> that seems like all this trouble and turmoil is going in your life, and you're just like wondering, God, do you know what you're doing up there? This lie echoes the previous lie of Satan in Genesis 3-4. Remember that lie? Where Satan had the audacity to, to correct God? And he says this to Eve, no, you will not die. He says, no, you will not die. He questions, he questions God's integrity in that moment. Notice with me the simplicity and the short-sightedness of sin. Abraham goes along with Sarai's misconstrued plans without even considering God's counsel. This is a word for our husbands this morning. Husbands, it's okay to listen to any plan that's presented before you, but you must always take that plan before the, the one who is, has the blueprint of your plans, God himself. I love this because it reminds us uh, of Psalm 10.4. Psalm 10.4 puts it this way, in his pride, the wicked man does not seek him, him being God. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. As men of God and, and as husbands, as wives, as sons of the Most High God, there always has to be room for God in our life. Because if you are not having room for God, then you are not having a vision of how to lead your family well. 
Vision only comes from God. And I'm not just talking to husbands. I'm talking to single men as well. Vision for your life only comes through God. It's a good reminder for us that regardless of the promise given, God is always our greatest provision. I love how David puts it in Psalm 23.1. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. And he summarizes that in a simple clause. I have what I need. Do you hear that? It's not God is my shepherd and man, he's a really good provider. He's saying, you know, God is my, the Lord is my shepherd. And guess what? I have everything I need in him. And if I could go back in time and if I could have a biblical counseling session with Abraham, these are the words that I would share with my brother. I would remind him and say, listen, God has been so faithful to you. He's been so kind to you. He's been so gracious to you. I know that the promise is slow in coming, but it doesn't dilute the character and goodness of your God. Stick with God. Stay with him. Look to him. If you have to wait 20 years for your answer, it's worth every single minute in that year. Again, how long is too long to wait on God? Love how the African Bible commentary puts this. Since Abraham made the same mistake as Adam in following his wife's advice rather than listening to God, he should first take in this plan to God to see whether he approved of it. By failing to do so, he failed to play the protective role that God intended for husbands. When the responsibilities instituted in the beginning by the Lord for the couple are not respected, the home is in danger of falling into great disarray in all society with it. I say yes and amen to that statement in every way. So what's the result of not listening to God's advice? What's the result of not listening or heeding God's counsel? Look with me in verses 5 and 6. It says, Then Sarai said to Abraham, You are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. Abraham replied to Sarah, Here, your slave is in your hands. Do whatever you want with her. And Sarai mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. Notice the results. Notice the results of self-centered plans. The results of self-centered plans is always suffering and sorrow and never joyous praise. I love what bit. How Benjamin Rush puts this in his letter written in 1783. He wrote these, these famous words, two wrongs don't make a right. <laughs> and we see that here in the text. We see that here in this very story, in this narrative. Notice the progression of sin. Sarah thinks wrongly of God. He made me this way. He made me barren. So Sarah decides to use Hagar without her permission 
to be used to solve the problem. Abraham passively agrees to Sarah's idea. He sleeps with Hagar. Hagar looks with contempt upon Sarah Sarah, because she takes God's blessing as a sign of favor upon her life. Sarah is jealous and angry, and rightfully so. And then she looks at her husband and accuses him for her suffering. And lastly, but not least, we see Abraham renounces Hagar. Remember, Hagar was given to him as a wife. So at this time, Abraham really has two wives. But instead of protecting Hagar against Sarah's wrath, he uses Hagar and says, listen, you, you got a problem with her? You deal with her. I'm not going to protect her. <laughs> I'm not going to do anything about it. It's your problem. Do whatever you want to this so-called wife of mine. Listen to me. I know that this may seem depressing, but it's a good reminder for us as a church. And here's the reminder. Wrong thinking about God leads to wrong treatment of others. Wrong thinking of God leads to wrong treatment of others. Know that many of us may have thought and think again that this was an egregious act by Sarah, but how could she possibly allow her husband to sleep with this slave girl? I love the explanation in the New Bible Commentary. It simply says this. I'm not going to read all of it, but just the beginning. It says, while this is seen as being egregious in our culture today, in the, near, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, using one's concubine as a surrogate mother was not uncommon and it was not despised. Many in ancient times saw nothing wrong in surrogate marriage. Marriage and surrogate motherhood is still an issue in contemporary society. I'll stop there. So why does Sarah encourage Abraham to sleep with Hagar? It doesn't come out of anywhere. It doesn't come out of anywhere. It comes from a heart that has been embittered it comes from a heart that has been hardened by the reality that God doesn't care. Again, it's a good reminder for us that the outworking of sin grows from roots that are already planted deep in our hearts. The outworking of sin grows from roots that are already planted deeply in our hearts. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 12, 34. He says, for the mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. Other version says this, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when we see these things that come out of us, maybe even erratic behavior or outburst of wrath or anger or sorrow, pain, whatever those things, we have to realize that those place, things don't come out of anywhere. They come from our hearts. They come from our hearts. Look with me lastly to verses 7 to 12 to examine the third lie. God is incredible. Verses 7 to 12 puts it this way. It says that the angel of the Lord found her, her being Hagar, by a spring in the wilderness, the spring on the, word, on the way to Shur. 
He said, Hagar, slave of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? She replied, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah. The angel of the Lord said to her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring and they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her, you have conceived and you will have a son. You will name him Ishmael for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. This man will be like a wild donkey. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him. He will settle near all his relatives. So if the question from the very beginning with Sarah that she was struggling with is this, I know what God has promised Abraham, but his, does his problem also include me? If Abraham's question was, how long is too long? Does God really know what he's doing? Then at this moment in time, Hagar's question would be this, would be this. Can God do anything about my suffering? Or better yet, is God able to draw near despite my loneliness and my isolation? So the big question we have here is how will God respond? I love how he responds because how he responds points to the gospel. He responds by entering into the picture himself. Notice that In the Bible, this is the first mention of this term, the angel of the Lord. Never before up to this point in biblical history have we heard of this term of the angel of the Lord. So so what is the angel of the Lord? The angel of the Lord is a theophany of God, meaning that it is um, the appearance of God in human form. It is God showing up not just just in, um, in power, but in presence. That God shows up for this woman in her sorrow and in her suffering in the form that can only be described as and only be known as the angel of the Lord. I love how Hebrews 1.3 talks about this. Talks about Jesus. He says, Jesus is the, um, he, the son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So ultimately, the angel of the Lord is synonymous with God. The angel of the Lord is not just a regular angel. The angel of the Lord is uh, um, the physical manifestation of God in human form, who not only comes in appearance as God, but he also speaks on behalf of God. It is without doubt that I believe that this angel of the Lord speaks to none other than the second person of the Holy Trinity, Jesus Christ himself. And notice with me that Jesus shows up for Hagar, although she has no claims on the mercy of God. Hagar has not been given a promise. She's only been around those who've been given a promise. Hagar isn't even a part of the royal family by by blood. But yet God shows up for her. And yet God responds to her pain, he responds to her suffering, and he responds to her neglect. I love this because James puts it another way in James 4, 6, 4 and 6. He says this, God resists the proud, but he gives grace. He gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. God responds to the cries of the most unlikely character in our story. Not to Abraham, who received the promise. Not to Sarai, 
the one who, who could birth the promise, but he appears to Hagar, the one who was misused by those who the promise was given. He appears to Hagar, an Egyptian woman, a black woman, a single mother who was running away trying to escape from an abusive relationship. I love this because it reminds us that God God does show up for those who can't show up for themselves. He shows up for the single mother. The first time we have in Scripture that the angel of the Lord shows up for somebody, it's a single black woman who's running away from an abusive relationship. And God draws near to her and gives her comfort. Now, listen, it's not important that she's single or black. That's not what's most important. The most important thing is that God shows up for those who need it. God shows up for those who need him to show up. And on all the people in the world, as Hagar is running away with tears in her eyes, gone, going from the place of being a slave to a wife to a reject, God shows up for her in a way that he hasn't shown up for anybody else. Remember, failure isn't fatal with our God. He knows how to step up. Not only that, but this speaks to Jesus. It speaks to him stepping outside of the throne room of heaven to help those who also can't help themselves. You remember how Philippians 2 gives a description of Jesus? It says, Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited, but instead he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he, had, and when he had, uh, came as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Our God knows how to show up for us. He knows how to show up. So notice with me, where does the angel of the Lord find Hagar? Notice with me in verse 7. It says, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. Now, Shur is a town just outside of Egypt. So we can rightly assume that Hagar was not just running away from Abraham and Sarah. Hagar was returning home. She was going back to Egypt, back to where it's safe and back where it, to where it's familiar and back to where it's comfortable. And Jesus finds Hagar at a place of uncertainty, confusion, and denial. And he finds her in between, in between places within her life of where she has been and where she is going. Much like he did the woman at the Samaritan well in John chapter 4. Now here's the big question that we have to ask ourselves. Here's a question that we'll conclude on. Why does the angel tell Hagar to return back to Abraham and Sarah's house? Why does the angel tell her to go back? I mean, doesn't God know that she was being abused? Doesn't God know that she was being mistreated? I believe that the reason why God sent her back was because the God who responded to the needs of Hagar would also be the one to serve the needs of Sarah. In other words, 
by sending Hagar back to Sarah. Hagar will be a constant reminder of God's ability to see and to respond to the needs of his people. I need you to hear me on this. By sending Hagar back to Sarah, Hagar will be a constant reminder of God's ability. He will be a constant reminder of God's provision. She will be a constant reminder of God's goodness to respond to the needs of his people. Notice the transition of Hagar's position. In Genesis 12, 6, she was sold to Abraham as a slave. In Genesis 16, 1 and 2, she served Sarah as a maidservant. In Genesis 16, 3 and 4, she was promoted to be a wife, a surrogate mother to Abram. In Genesis 16, 6, she was rejected by Abram and abused by Sarah again as a slave. In Genesis 16, 7, she was found by the angel of the Lord as a wandering sojourner. And now in Genesis 16, 8 through 12, she's called home to return home as a servant of God. Notice with me, Hagar left as a slave of Sarah, but she she is called to return home as a servant of the Most High God, as a one who is to be used as a vessel of God, to remind Abraham and Sarah of God's goodness. Listen, it's a good reminder for us that when we truly encounter God, our lives and our identities cannot remain the same. Amen? They cannot remain the same. When we truly meet God, when we truly see him, when we truly experience his goodness in our lives, our lives and our identities cannot remain the same. And therefore, Hagar goes from being a slave of Sarai to a servant of the Most High God within eight verses of this chapter. It's what we say here all the time, that our identity precedes our function. You know what? If I had opportunity to have all three of these folks in my office to give a counseling session, that's the one word I would remind them, that your identity precedes your function. Abraham, your ide- excuse me, Sarai, your identity is not just in having children. If you can have children or cannot, that does not mean make you a lesser woman before God. God loves you as a daughter of the Most High God. Abraham, I know that God has promised you great things and you have not seen them yet. That does not dilute the goodness of God in your life. And Hagar, you don't have to be promoted to a special place of privilege in order to receive the love of God. You are already loved by God right now as you you are as a slave. Identity precedes Function, who we are, is so much more important than what we do. And if we live into this reality, church, if we live into the reality that the scripture calls us to, there is a sense of freedom, there is a sense of love, and there's a a sense of acceptance that only God and his glorious gospel can provide. That we're not fighting for victory, we're fighting from victory. So what's the response of one who's finally been seen by God? What's the response of the one who no one else would see? Look with me in verses 13 through 16. So she named the Lord who spoke to her, you are El Roy. For she said, in this place, I have actually seen the one who sees me, the God who sees me. This is why the well is called Bera Roy, which is Kadesh and which is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar gave uh, birth says Adam's to Abram's son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. 
Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Notice with me here that the God who sees me is also the God whom I can see. It's not just about God seeing you, but it's also about your ability to see and understand and comprehend who God is. And no matter what God sees, no matter what I see or what experience, God sees me and he knows me better than I know myself. And the same way that God saw Hagar, he will eventually see and respond to Sarah. You see, after 13 years of silence, God finally speaks again to Abraham and Sarah. In Genesis 17, 15, he says these words. God said to Abraham, as for your wife, Sarai, do not call her Sarai, for Sarah will be her name. I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she will produce nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. So why did God send Hagar back to Sarah? Maybe it wasn't for punishment, but maybe it was for praise. Maybe God sent Hagar back to Sarai because as she gave birth and as she held her crying baby, that little baby Ishmael, and Ishmael literally means God hears. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.